actually in Jonah 3 and 4 today, but I'm going to read Jonah 4. This is how it ends. <clears throat> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you be well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, would, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly sad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it was withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you be well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for how this story begins. Thank you for how it ends. Thank you that it points us to you, who revealed yourself to us in the person and work of your son. And I pray that you'd show us Christ from this text. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I read these words Monday morning in my Bible, just kind of trekking through the book of Isaiah, and I was stunned afresh, and I was stung afresh by them in a really good way. The text is Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. My first thought Monday morning, admittedly, was, man, that is a perfect text for Jonah. Jonah needs these words. How willing we have seen him now for this the third week. How willing we've seen him and we'll see him again today. Willing to be on the receiving end of God's mercy and to be the mouthpiece of God's mercy to his own sinful people. But how unwilling he is to see and to celebrate and to be the mouthpiece of God's mercy toward those that he deems less worthy of that mercy than himself and his people. We've seen Jonah in this book even willing to attempt what he himself acknowledges is the impossible. 
He tries to escape his calling by setting out for a land that has not yet been graced by God's glory and revelation as if God's, we termed it, felt presence is restricted to borders and boundaries or somehow challenged by topography, land and sea. How willing sinful man is. Jonah, you, me. To risk everything. Including his own soul. When he disagrees with God. Over justice and mercy. And I think. Isaiah 48 verses 9 through 11. Is one of those texts. That you should memorize. And recite. And meditate on. Any time that you think God has done you wrong, or let you down, or disappointed you, or ignored you, or expected from you what you struggle, or are unwilling to give, or has given to others what they do not deserve. Isaiah 48 verses 9 through 11 reminds us four times that God does what he does for his sake. His namesake. The sake of his praise, for his own sake, for his own sake. Verse 11 says twice. Now, let me give you an illustration. Um, those of you that know me are going to think I'm just, it's my excuse to talk about Rocky IV. Okay, so I want to set up the illustration by saying, uh, in light of that, if I, were to use, if I were to tell you that I'm a, I'm a pastor at Christ Fellowship for my own sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, you would probably at minimum correct me, if not fire me, because the sinfulness of those words coming out of my mouth in reference to why I do what I do here suggests that I am a self-centered, self-serving person that ultimately doesn't care about you, which means in the process of me acting for, for my namesake, for the sake of my pra- <coughs> praise, and for my own sake, is somehow going to come at your expense. So I read this text this week, fresh off our annual Christmas Rocky Four. Celebration. And, and this scene struck me. Christmas Day, Russia. Rocky is avenging the death of Apollo Creed against Ivan Drago, or Ivan Drago, depending on how you want to say it. Rocky's about half the size of Drago. He's given no chance, not even from his wife. He gets pummeled in the entire first round. The commentators are calling on the ref to stop the fight before Rocky gets killed as well, just like his friend. But halfway through the second round, what happens? Rocky lands a right hook across the face of the Russian, stuns the crowd, draws blood, and then it's just an all-out war after that. Round after round, back and forth until round 12, when what happens? Suddenly, cheers for Rocky can be heard coming from the hostile Russian crowd. By the time round 14 is over, the whole crowd is cheering his name, and when the Russian premier leaves his seat and shows up at ringside, he shoves Drago's head 
tells him to listen to the crowd, and he calls him a disgrace. And do you remember the Russians' reaction? Lifts him up by the neck, throws him down on the ground, and he shouts with his fists raised to the crowd, I fight to win for me. For me. He says it twice, and in the 15th round, he goes down. Isaiah 48 is not that. Isaiah 48 is not God self-imploding or self-destructing. It's not God shaking his fists at his fickle, sinful people and declaring, I don't care anyway because I am for me. I do what I do for me. Brothers and sisters, all of his for my namesake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, in Isaiah 48, is not the foundation of God's self-destruction as it is when similar statements come out of the mouths of men. Isaiah 48, for my namesake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, is the foundation of God's mercy on unworthy sinners. So, For my namesake, he says, I defer my anger. For the sake of my name, I restrain my anger. For my sake, according to verse 11, twice, I refine and I try my people. Why? Because I will not share my glory with another. Which means I will do those things God will do those things that he says above. He will defer his anger, restrain his anger, refine and test his people so that the profaning of his name is turned to praise. So God's pursuit of the praise of the glory of his name is not at sinner's expense, but for their good. So that we are turned from profaners of his name to worshipers who praise the glory of his name. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, is the only reason any of us are here today praising rather than out there profaning. Not because God saw something in you that he wanted or needed, but because God is passionate about the praise of the glory of his name. And instead of unleashing his fury on you and me and sending us to the hell that we deserve, where his name is profane for all of eternity and his mercy is absent for all of eternity, he unleashed his wrath upon his own son so that he might defer it and restrain it upon sinners like us. So that our profaning might be turned to praise. And this is exactly what God was going to do to Nineveh. His passion for the praise of the glory of his name sent his son into the world and to the cross to absorb all the wrath due to sinners like you, like me, like Jonah, like the profaners of his name in Nineveh so that their profaning of his name would be turned to praise. And the scope, which what Jonah was struggling with here, The scope of God's mercy to defer and restrain his anger from sinful man to unleash it upon his son was always meant to reach to the ends of the earth. 
always meant to reach the Ninevites. God's covenant of grace with man in the garden was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent long before nations and colors and borders and boundaries were apparent on earth. And when God formed an earthly people to preserve that seed and live out the covenantal hope in that promise until the seed would come, he made clear that in Abraham, Meaning, in the seed of Eve that would be preserved in the offspring of Abraham, one day to be born, to bring all of God's promises to pass, in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So when God commissioned Jonah to Nineveh with a message of judgment, you would assume that his cry would be for mercy upon them in light of Genesis 12. And later, post-Jonah, Isaiah 48. So that sinners from other nations like his own might be turned from profaners of God's name to worshipers who praise the glory of his name in Christ upon whom his anger was deferred and absorbed. But instead, Jonah runs. And in Jonah's running, God's passion for his glory saves a bunch of Gentile sailors by means of a wind and a storm and the casting of lots and turns them to worshipers where we find them at the end of chapter 1. Then he saves Jonah from the sea and the storm and from Sheol itself by means of the fish. So that like the sailors in chapter 1, Jonah's heart is turned to worship and praise. And at the end of chapter 2, Jonah, the now worshiping prophet, is vomited out of the fish's belly upon dry land. And to a degree, to a degree, it would be satisfying if the story just ended right there, wouldn't it? To a degree. So it makes for a great story if Jonah, the first king, second kings 14, bold and obedient prophet, who becomes in Jonah, chapter 1, Jonah the reluctant and rebellious prophet, until God's mercy saves him, it would be satisfying if the story of Jonah the bold and obedient, who becomes Jonah the reluctant and rebellious, ends at the end of chapter 2 with him as Jonah the repentant and the worshiping prophet. But the story doesn't. End there. And the fact that the story doesn't end there is a simple reminder that Jonah is not about Jonah. It's not about Jonah the bold and obedient. It's not about Jonah the reluctant and rebellious. It's not even about Jonah the repentant and the worshipful. But it is about God, the faithful and merciful, who deferred and restrained his anger upon sinful man and unleashed it upon his sinless son so that he could have mercy upon sinful man to turn his sinful heart from profaning his name to praise. That's what the story of Jonah is about. And because God's passion for the praise of the glory of his name among the Ninevites was not satisfied in Jonah's repentance and restoration in the belly of the fish, he recommissions his prophet in chapter 3, which is where we are. In many ways, chapter 3 parallels chapter 1 with only a few small differences, just like chapter 4 parallels chapter 2. The, the commission's the same. 
fact that it's the same tells me that in God's pursuit of the praise of the glory of his name in Nineveh, God remains committed to his means to that end. Which is always his spirit through the gospel, through the mouths of his people. So while it seems that Jonah's heart is in a better place in chapter 2 than it was in chapter 1, God remains relentlessly committed to his name praised in Nineveh through the Spirit's work by means of the preached word out of the mouth of Jonah. So while Jesus says, if, the, if these were silent, the stones would cry out, the stones don't cry out here. Because he commissions his people... Jonah here to cry out. He commissions his people to cry out the message of the gospel so that sinners in turn cry out the praise of his name. So in remaining relentlessly faithful to pursue the praise of the glory of his name in Nineveh by means of Jonah, God is remaining relentlessly faithful to Jonah himself so that Jonah might praise the glory of God's name when the Ninevites repent. And brothers and sisters, wherever you are in life, that the, the relentless faithfulness of God on display in this book ought to be a tremendous encouragement to you. That God has not cast you off. God has not declared you useless. God has not moved on from you. If you've run from him or rebelled against him, in Christ you are a son and an heir. And in the process of his passion for his glory in others, he continues to pursue his passion for his glory in you, which is your greatest joy. Chapter 3 of Jonah parts ways with chapter 1 in verse 3. Where instead of arising and fleeing to Tarshish, where Jonah hoped God's felt presence would be absent, Jonah arises and goes to Nineveh, where he knew God's felt presence would be real. So let's look at his message. If you've read much in Jonah, or really if you have any other version than the ESV this morning, you notice a, a slight difference in Jonah's commission in chapter 3 from chapter 1. It's, it's not there in the ESV, but it's there in every single other version that I checked. So in chapter 1, the commission was, Arise, go out, and call against Nineveh. Chapter 3, it is, Arise, go, call out to Nineveh. It's slight. I bring it up because many people make a really big deal out of the change and say in chapter 1 that God commissions him to denounce, call out against, denounce Nineveh because of her sins. But in chapter 3, God is simply commissioning Jonah to preach to Nineveh by implication for her repentance. I'm only bringing it up to you, probably for a lot of you, I'm just introducing you to something you don't even have to think about ever again for the rest of your life. But I bring it up because it's there. And it's pretty clear that Jonah understands something more in chapter 1 than merely denounce, or else he would not have run. 
just like he understands something more than mercy and grace in chapter 3. Because when you look at the snapshot of his message that we're given in verse 4, it's a warning of judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So God remained passionate for the praise of the glory of his name among the Ninevites. And he remained relentlessly faithful to pursue the praise of his name among the Ninevites through Jonah. Which means he remained passionate about the praise of the glory of his name in Jonah's heart as well. So that Jonah would praise God's faithfulness to his covenant to bless the nations through the hope of redemption in Abraham's seed. But brothers and sisters, on the way to that end, in all people, Ninevites, you, me, all people, on the way to that end, he will not overlook sin. Ever. Remember, in chapter 1, the message was, their evil has come up before me. And when Jonah is recommissioned in chapter 3, if there is anything behind the chains of preposition, and I don't really think there is, it's not as all as if the sin that had reached heaven in chapter 1 was forgotten in chapter 3. God's relentless passion for the praise of the glory of his name among unworthy sinners requires a satisfied justice over those sins. And for those who believe, that justice was satisfied in the death of his son. So when God says in Isaiah 48 that he defers and restrains his anger, that deferring and restraining is not indefinite. Nor does it mean that the sin that angers him is overlooked. In Isaiah, it's deferred and restrained just five chapters until chapter 53 when you know what happens. The servant is revealed. And what does God's servant do? He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace is upon him. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jonah is in Nineveh proclaiming a message of impending judgment for their sins that had reached heaven. But he ran from that in chapter 1, not because he didn't want to see the Ninevites judged, but because he didn't want to see them saved. It's unbelievable. Which doesn't seem to make sense, because on the surface, it seems as though the message that Jonah is commissioned to preach is the one that a person with his heart disposition would want to preach to people he hates. Doesn't it? Remember? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown? Your sins have reached heaven? Two weeks ago, I mentioned that the way Nineveh was being portrayed in chapter 1 is reminiscent of Sodom in Genesis 18, Babylon in Revelation 18. So Jonah's message in Jonah 3 here makes another connection with Sodom with that use of the word overthrow which is what Genesis 19 says God did to Sodom and Gomorrah and yet Jonah flees because he knows he knows that the inseparable other side of God's judgment is his mercy so that in being commissioned to preach impending judgment for sin, he's also calling the Ninevites to repent and to believe that the God that he proclaimed was, as Jonah says in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. 
So in announcing God's judgment on them, he's calling them to repentance and faith in Israel's God. Who promised to redeem his people through a seed whose heel would be bruised for sinners in the process of crushing the head of the serpent. So that he might deal once and for all with sin and lift the curse and reverse the effects of the fall and restore all things. Jonah is not announcing a message of God's judgment and mercy outside of covenant promises. Because there is no mercy outside of God's covenant promise in Jesus. So in announcing judgment for sin, he's calling them, whether his words say it or not, in announcing judgment from sin, he is calling them to the inseparable other side, which is repent and believe, which is exactly what they do in an unbelievable way in chapter 3. So Nineveh's repentance. In sum, from the least of them to the greatest of them, according to verse 5, Nineveh repents, including the king. The king says a lot to his people by means of decrees from the throne in verses 7 through 9. But I'm going to sum it up with these helpful words from T. Desmond Alexander. They realize only too well. He's speaking about king, decree from the throne, Nineveh. They realize only too well that pious actions and prayers can never merit or guarantee divine forgiveness. God is under no obligation to pardon. There remains, however, the hope that he may look upon them with mercy and turn away his fierce anger. And and you can't help but compare those words to Jonah's words. Jonah's words, which presumed upon mercy for him and his own people, but despised it in reference to the Ninevites. This is a pagan king acknowledging his own and his own people's unworthiness of God's mercy, but calling by decree from the throne for fasting among man and beast and sackcloth and repentance in hope that by grace alone, verse 9, God may turn and relent and may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, the king says. And what's striking to me is when you compare the king's words with Isaiah 48, which were written long after, where God says he defers and restrains his anger so that those destined to be cut off for their profaning of his name would not perish but live, and not just live but praise the glory of his name. If you ask, how is that even possible that the pagan king of Nineveh's words express the same words that weren't even revealed yet because Isaiah wasn't even prophesying yet. And my answer would be, that happens by a miracle of grace because Hebrews 4.12 and Isaiah 55.10 are both true. So, that happened because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and, is, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, not you, not me, not even a pagan king, is hidden from his sight or out of the reach of his living word, which Isaiah Chapter 55 says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall God's living word 
be that goes forth from his mouth. It shall not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which he purposes, and it shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. In this case, the salvation of Nineveh. The word accomplished the purpose for which it, he sent, God sent it, even though it was spoken through the mouth of a man who had a, a different outcome that he hoped for than God's purpose. Which, brothers and sisters, just further magnifies the word and the power of the Spirit to accomplish his will. Your compliance and obedience is for your joy or misery. But the success of his word is determined by God's unfailing will and power alone. When you come to verse 10, and verse 10 says, God relents. If you read in the KJV, I think it says God repents. That does not mean for God, but it means for you and me to repent. It simply means that whereas their sin solicited God's just impending judgment, God determined by his grace for the sake of the praise of his name to show them mercy, but not apart from their repentance and faith. So God's means to turn his judgment into mercy for his praise among the Ninevites was to send his prophet there to preach his living word to effect in the hearts of the Ninevites the repentance and faith that God required to turn his judgment to mercy. Verse 10 is not magnifying Man's ability to change God's mind. It's magnifying God's determination to be gracious and the means that in God's sovereignty and kindness he uses to turn just impending judgment to mercy. Just the same as me saying to you today, God's just wrath hangs over you for your sins against him. Therefore, repent and believe in Jesus, and God will relent of that wrath and show you mercy. The word of God's judgments that has the inseparable other side of his mercy is the designed means in God's kindness by which he relents so that the praise belongs to him every time. God determined to turn justice to mercy on you. And he accomplished what he determined through means that not you or I or kings could stand in the way of, which is why you praise him for mercy. You don't look in the mirror and praise yourself for turning his heart towards you in mercy, do you? Chapter 4. Jonah's anger and God's mercy. As God's anger toward Nineveh was deferred, Jonah's anger toward God resurfaces itself. Verse 2 is what makes sense of this whole rather confusing story of Jonah. And he prayed to the Lord, this is when he saw Nineveh repent, and he said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now, prepare yourself. Why did Jonah flee to Tarshish? What has made Jonah 
so angry twice now in this book. He says it. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, which, which comes directly from God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34. I only bring that up to say what Jonah says here, he's not guessing, he's confessing. And what's so stunning about the confession is that Jonah wants to die over the very attributes that he confesses here. Without verse 4, you could get the impression from verse 3 that Jonah wants to die because he's come to the realization that he sinned and he's just so sorrowful over his sin. He's just saying, God, you may as well take me. With verse 4, you can't go there. With verse 4, you realize he's not. He's angry. He would rather risk his own life and soul to attempt to withhold God's relentless mercy from reaching people he deems unworthy. And now he would rather die than live in a world where God does what he pleases for the praise of his name. When Jonah disagrees. And when God questions Jonah's right to be angry the first time, Jonah ignores him, leaves the city, builds a shelter, and just waits to see what would happen to the city. A lot of people, a lot of opinions out there on what he's doing there on the east of the city or thinking there. Is he sulking? Is he plotting? Is he quitting? Is he holding out hope that God will still rain down fire and brimstone? Kind of, it's another one of those issues that we'll never know. Don't spend much time thinking about it. We'll never know because it's not why this scene is preserved for us. It's preserved for us because the God that Jonah confesses is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and relents of his anger towards sinners because his son absorbed his anger for sinners. That God, once again, even though Jonah wishes that he would die because of it, that God, once again, acts in grace and mercy and love on Jonah. Again, even though he's so angry over those very things that he wishes death upon himself. But just like Jonah was not able by running or by proclaiming judgment to stand in the way of God's relentless passion for the praise of his name among the Ninevites, so Jonah's death wish over his problem with God's mercy and compassion cannot stand in the way of of God's relentless passion for the praise of his name in Jonah's heart. So in verse 6, God appoints a plant to shade him and to save him. So to shade him from the heat of the sun and to save him from the heat of his anger. Your ESV says discomfort, but I agree with many who say there's double meaning here, which is why there are two things the plant does that are not redundant. The plant shades his head from the heat of the sun, and the plant also saves his heart from the heat of his anger. And for a moment, Jonah again rejoices over the mercy in verse 6, until God reveals the other aspect of his nature in verse 7, when he appoints a worm and removes the shade from his head, which again resurfaces the heat of the anger in his heart. Brothers and sisters, God is... God is not just toying with Jonah here. 
God is setting relentless grace and mercy on him for the sake of his praise on Jonah's lips and in Jonah's heart. I quoted T. Desmond Alexander a bit ago. I think he sums up the lesson of verses 10 and 11 well, so I'll, I'll let him speak. By contrasting Jonah's attitude to the gourd with his attitude toward the Ninevites, God highlights where the real absurdity lies. Jonah is filled with compassion regarding a mere plant, yet remains hard-hearted toward the entire population of a city. He shows concern for one small item of God's creation, yet fails to care for a large mass of people who, like Jonah, were made in the divine image. The inconsistency rests not with God, but with Jonah. And the story ends with us wondering, what happens to Jonah? Does he repent? How does it end for him? And we're not told. We're not told anywhere. But I think that's on purpose. So that we would leave the book of Jonah once again being assured that the story was never about Jonah. Or fish, or Nineveh, or plants, or worms, but God. A God who does what he does for the praise of his name. He defers his anger. He restrains his anger. He pours out his deferred and restrained anger on his own son. In the place of those from whom he deferred and restrained it so that they might be saved. And then he refines those people. And tries those people when they try to destroy themselves because he loves them and remains faithful to them so that they will not be cut off. Which he promises, you will not be cut off. And then he uses those people that he's shown mercy on and tried and refined. He uses them to announce an impending judgment over sin against sinners that has been poured out already on his son for all who will receive it so that profaners of his name among all nations might be turned into worshipers who praise the glory of his name in the greater prophet than Jonah, the greater savior than the fish, the greater shelter than the gourd. In sum, we'll give Ray Ortland the last word. In sum, he wants us to know from this book that God displays his grace toward backward people like us for his glory. Therefore, nothing can keep him from, from fulfilling his promises to us. The only thing I can add to that as we close is Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we end another book with the same thought with which we ended the last one. You are gracious. You're merciful. You faithfully carried out your eternal plan to save 
sinners like us from the hell that we deserve. And you did it by means of your son's sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. And this is the note that we will next week begin a new study on. And then two weeks from there, a new study. This is the theme and message of your word. And it's the message that your spirit uses to break, smash, crush, only to revive and nourish and strengthen the hearts of your people. Do that this morning once again, by grace, in mercy, because of Jesus. For this we pray in Jesus' name.